All right. What do you expect from a hostage negotiator from the United States? He'll say something like, how you doing? <laughs> I speak New York, too, even though I grew up. I grew up in a small town in the Midwest, son of Richard and Joyce Voss, Mount Pleasant, Iowa. About as many people in the town I grew up in as are in this room right now. So I feel at home. All right, let me, uh, let me play this video first. carrying on a verbal love affair with the word hostage. Listen. You do not hold people hostage or engage in ransom taking to get 100% of your way. They're trying to hold veterans hostage to force Obamacare on the American people. You cannot negotiate with a hostage situation. We've got a group of folks who think that they can hold uh, America hostage. The president somehow wants to keep uh, this hostage. They've taken hostages. No president should be held hostage. Holding our government hostage. Holding the U.S. hostage. Hold the entire country hostage. Hold them hostage. Don't hold anyone hostage. They took hostages. Hostage taking. Stop taking hostages. They had to take the country hostage. W whether or not it's, 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 it's correct to, to kind of use the hostage terms of, by politicians. When you see this, as somebody who's negotiated a lot, when you see what's going on in Washington, what jumps out to you? Well, uh, there's two things about that. You know, I, on a personal note, I, I like that they use the word because then it gives me a chance to be on your show. And they <laughs> <laughs> I get it. You know, I haven't been able to focus on anything. His company is called the Black Swan Group. That is the baddest-ass name I have ever heard. I love that. Now, what is the Black Swan Group? That's like the coolest. What is that? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, a black swan is uh, something unusual that has a great impact, and we like to think that the way we negotiate has a great impact. See? All right. How often do you get a chance to make Anderson Cooper laugh, right? All right, so... I want to help you be black swans. I want to help you learn how to do the, the little things, tiny little changes that will make a huge difference in the interactions that you have with your clients, with the buyers, with the sellers, with everybody. Little things. So the first question I'd ask is, uh, what business are you in? What business are you in? I heard, heard a very prominent real estate professional once say, they're in the trust business. I think you guys are in the trust business. What business was a hostage negotiator in? I was in the trust business. It's the same business, slightly different circumstances. Real estate would be easy, right, if it wasn't for buyers and sellers. But it's a trust business. And I, you know, I had, I had the, uh, the pleasure to listen to several of the speakers yesterday and today and one of them that really brought it searingly home to me is to you guys are doing exactly a different a type of negotiation that we did. It's absolutely the same thing, only circumstances a little bit different. So I'll get there in a minute, but I would ask you to consider this circumstance. I was the FBI's lead international kidnapping negotiator. That meant that I was responsible to work on a safe return of any American that got kidnapped overseas anywhere in the world. And it's a big world, and there are a lot of Americans. So when I was doing it, we were fairly busy. I get a call one day. I'm in Washington, D.C. 12-year-old boy's been kidnapped in Haiti. 
Now, at the time before the earthquake that happened in Haiti a few years ago, the kidnapping industry in Haiti was thriving, and it was, it was a business. Kidnapping is a commodities business. Make no mistake. doesn't matter how we feel about it. It's how the other side looks at things. And they had a great business model in Haiti at the time. It was a really good model. Kidnappers would carjack a car with more than one person in it. You get a car, you get a couple of people. You let one of the pre people go to scare up a ransom, so they notify people that there's been a, been a kidnapping, and you got another person, you got a car. The benefits just continue from there. If they have a car, they probably got money to pay a ransom. Got a car in Haiti, you got some money. And if they don't have any money, you got a car. So it's a great business model. Now what's happening at the time is a lot of dual nationals are getting kidnapped. The bad guys do not know that they're grabbing American citizens. They think they're grabbing Haitians. One of the great things, if you will, that I took for granted, uh, that I love about the United States where I grew up, you're an American citizen if you're born there. Very few places in the world that are like that. It's primarily a Western Hemisphere, American Hemisphere function. Um, you're, not, you're not American by birth in Australia. You have partial birth rights by being born here, but you have to be born of a citizen. It's not, it's not required in America, so the advantages of American citizenship for people from developing countries are very high. So what's happening at the time is Haitian mothers, knowing that the very best gift that they can give their child on their first birthday is a gift of American citizenship, are finding their way into the United States one way or another, legally or illegally, so their child will be born an American citizen. This is why all these Americans are getting grabbed in kidnappings, the bad guys don't know they're grabbing Americans. So it's a 12-year-old Haitian boy. He's kidnapped. His father is not an American citizen, but he knows his son is. So he goes to the, uh, the U.S. Embassy and says, my son is an American citizen. He's been kidnapped. And you're the U.S. government. You're supposed to help me. And the embassy says, the FBI is going to help you out. Now, I'm not entirely sure what went through his mind when they told him that. But I think he probably thought something. About 15 minutes later, he was going to hear a on the front door, and Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones would be standing there. Or maybe give him FBI hats just to make him official, right? But instead of Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones showing up at his front door, he gets a call about 20 minutes later from some guy named Chris Voss in Washington, D.C., and he literally says to me, you're in Washington, D.C., how you going to help me? Now, how long do you think it is before this guy hangs up the phone on me? Maybe five seconds. Now, I've kind of been through this before, and I've done it wrong before. I've shown up in other countries where they'd never seen me before, and I was supposed to be the FBI expert. Advise on negotiation. Actually, if I'm the FBI's expert, I'm the expert for the United States government. They hadn't seen me before. They didn't care. They want to know my background. And I was dumb enough to tell them what my background was. Dumb enough to give them my resume, where I'd been trained, how many years I'd been doing it. Not just an FBI hostage negotiator. I actually teach FBI hostage negotiators. And when I've done that in other countries in the past, they were suitably unimpressed might almost yawn in my face. So I already know that this is a problem. And what I say to this guy is, 
All right, this is a deal. Haitian kidnappers are not killing kidnapped victims. Why? I know that's stupid because they kill each other at the drop of a hat, but they're not killing kidnapped victims. Now, today is Thursday, and Haitian kidnappers love to party on Saturday night. So if you do what I tell you to do, we'll have your son out by late Friday, early Saturday morning. He said, tell me what you want me to do. We had his son out Saturday morning. Now, this isn't that much different from what you're faced with for a variety of reasons, which we'll get into. I would point out to you that he never asked me how long I'd been a hostage negotiator. He never asked me how many kidnappings I worked. He never asked me how many kidnappings in Haiti I worked. He never asked me if I'd ever even been to Haiti. I've never been to Haiti. He didn't ask me if I spoke the local language, Creole. You might, you might ask yourself, Chris Voss, lead international kidnapping negotiator, supposed to work kidnappings all over the world. How many languages does this guy speak? By now, you've realized the answer to that is barely one. <laughs> None of those questions. Because as soon as I told him exactly what he was faced with, what the landscape looked like, as soon as I displayed an understanding of what he was faced with, he says, tell me what you want me to do. The people that you interact with don't care what your resumes are. They really don't. Your resume correlates loosely with whether or not you can do the job. Loosely with whether or not you understand. If you understand the challenges they're faced with, nothing else matters. The amount of trust and belief that they have in you, in the trust business, ramps up exponentially. Notice also, this approach is what we like to call, in many cases, the delay to save time. Notice I didn't say to him, I understand the market. And kidnapping is a market, it's a business. The first time I got briefed on international kidnappings, when, when I was brought in to become a kidnapping negotiator, I thought they were gonna give me the secret handshake you know, and the secret code words. And the, the man who became my mentor stood up and said, in every country you'll find out they're gonna have an initial opening demand and they're gonna expect to settle for a certain percentage of that demand. And they're gonna have an expectation of how long the kidnapping is gonna take. And each and every country, it's gonna be different, but each and every country is gonna have that profile. And I remember thinking to myself, this is a market for human beings. I was kind of blown away by that the first time I thought about it but it was a market, the commodity was human beings. And we had to learn what the expectations were of the people that we were faced with so that we could navigate that. Basic negotiation, basic understanding how the other side looks at it, getting out of your own way, what you think of it. So you're in the trust business, but take the word trust out and drop in the word predictability. And then things begin to change. Because as soon as you begin to make things more predictable and understandable for the people you're dealing with, now you begin to help them in huge ways. 
Your clients, buyers and sellers, match almost exactly the psychological profile and reactions of the family members of a kidnapped hostage. Somebody's family member gets kidnapped, their child gets kidnapped, and their hopes and dreams for the future have been taken hostage, have been hijacked. When your home is for sale, or you're trying to buy a home, these are hopes and dreams for the future. Very same profile. You can Google the most stressful events in people's lives, and buying or selling a home, especially selling a home, is very high on that hit parade. And the other interesting thing about this is the very same as a kidnapping is when a kidnapping starts, the family doesn't know when it's going to be over. Even though I know, I can guess within, if I know the profile of the case and I know the country that it's in, I can guess within either a week or a month as to how long it's going to take. I know, but they don't know. They haven't been through this before. One of the definitions of traumatic stress is that it's unrelenting. They don't know when it'll be over. Your clients, your buyers and sellers, they don't know when this is going to go away. They don't know when it's going to be over, and that is overwhelming for people. That's why they call it traumatic stress. In the kidnapping business, we found out that the families of kidnapped victims suffered traumatic stress at the same rates as the victims because they didn't know when it was going to be over. So that being said... What are some little things that you can do to make it easier? When, with these guidelines that I'm going to share with you, and I heard some of them talked about yesterday, word for word, by some of your top professionals in the room. We didn't have one single family go off track, go in the wrong direction, not follow our guidance when we followed some of these simple things. One of the things that I told that father when I spoke to him on the phone, since he doesn't know how long the kidnapping is going to last for sure, even though I've already given him a time frame, and I know as soon as I hang up the phone with him that the fear is going to come rushing back in, if he doesn't know the next time I'm going to call him, it's overwhelming. But I tell him, I'm going to call you back in an hour. Every time that I spoke to him on the phone, I said, you'll have me back on the phone in an hour. The father, if he doesn't know how many days it's going to be, is going to be scared to death. But if he knows he's only got to last for an hour, he can hang in there for an hour. I heard Supermom yesterday talking about calling her clients three times a week no matter what. That's phenomenal advice. Because if you've got a client that doesn't know when it's going to go through, they're sitting there waiting for the phone to ring, not knowing when it's going to ring. The unknown is a huge stressor. Here's how bad of a stressor the unknown is. Before I became a hostage negotiator, I was a member of FBI SWAT, and I tried out for the Bureau's version of the Navy SEALs, and the FBI has something called the hostage rescue team. And when I tried out for them, their maximum psychological stressor for us to try to get us to break was simply the unknown. They'd take us for a run, and we'd want to know how far we were going to go so we'd know how fast to run. If I know I'm going to run for an hour, if I'm going to run for five miles, I know how fast to run. And they'd take us for a run, and they'd just say, start running. We're done when we're done. Now, every single time they took us for a run, it was for about 45 minutes. 
but they take you out on a run, and if you know you're going to go 45 minutes, I can run seven-minute miles. If you run a lot, you know exactly how fast you run. You can pace yourself. If you don't know, it's supposed to stretch you out, especially if they're trying to run you into the ground. The unknown. If that's the maximum stressor for special forces around the planet, imagine what the unknown as a stressor for your clients is. And imagine how far you can go instantly if they know they're going to hear from you three times a week. No matter what, you have just now stepped up your game in terms of being in the trust business because you're adding predictability to it. They trust you more. They give you more latitude. The other thing I loved that I heard the supermom said yesterday too, which we did, and I had to learn this the hard way. When we're in the midst of a kidnapping that we know is going to last months, weeks, and many of them did, some of them last years, I would coach all of my negotiators, if you got nothing to tell the family, call them up and tell them you got nothing. Bring them on the phone. They know they're going to hear from you every couple of days. Call them on the phone and say, look, I just want you to know there's nothing new. And the families would love that. I learned that the hard way because there was a Department of State Citizen Services guy who was doing far better with the families than we were on the international kidnappings. And I, I finally said, well, you know, they love you. What are you doing? I call them every couple days, and if I got nothing new, I tell them I got nothing new. They love it because it adds predictability and stability, and they can, now, they can cope with the uncertainty. Supermom yesterday said, you know what? If I got, if I got no showings, if I got, nobody's come in to see the house, I call them, and I, and I say, look, nobody's been in to see the house. And your gut instinct is going to be, oh, that's going to make me look stupid. It's going to make me look like I'm not doing anything. That is not what it does. It makes you look like you're watching out for them. It helps, and in a way that they don't even understand, you're now helping to mitigate that stress for them. Now, the other thing this is also, which was I really wanted you to get the distinction in this, this is not calling them on the phone and saying, how you doing? How you doing? It's not calling them on the phone saying, how are you? And I can remember one time, one of my negotiators in the Cincinnati division, and we were working a case that had uh, ended up our hostages ended up getting killed by friendly fire. Uh, the 16th anniversary of that was just two days ago. But uh, we had a sister in the Cincinnati area. And I heard about this, this young lady, this woman, the entire time, because everybody was scared of her. When, when I finally met her in person, I was blown away because she was this buoyant, positive, upbeat, kind of like young pixie woman. And I was like, this, this is a girl that everybody's scared of? because she, she, she didn't take nonsense. She was a no-nonsense kind of person. So my negotiator says, you know, I'm, call, I'm tired of calling her on the phone and asking her how she's doing and having her bite my head off. And I, and I said to him, no, are you kidding me? How do you not know how she's doing? Her sister's being held hostage by terrorists. How are you doing? It's a silly question. I told you to call her and tell her you got nothing new. It'll take you three seconds. But he felt that made him look stupid. He's supposed to be the FBI. He's supposed to have all the answers. You know, we got computers. we got satellites. I can't call him and tell him there's nothing new. Believe me, the distance that that will go to help people relax while their child, their home, their hopes and dreams for the future is on the line in your hands... You want them to think they know I'm a professional, they've seen my marketing materials, they know the velocity of how, how the market goes, they know their pitfalls. Touch base with them regularly 
and just give them simple updates and you'll be amazed at how far it will go. And don't, don't start by saying, how you doing? Maybe you inquire about how they are after you've given them the information. There's another really small trick also to communication. People don't remember things how they happened. People remember them by the most intense moment and how it ended. If you move your genuine inquiry to how they are personally, from the beginning of the call to the end of the call, then every single ending interaction that you have with your clients, the last impression is the lasting impression. The last impression is you genuinely inquiring as to how they are. Call them first, deliver the information, whether it be good or bad. And I'll give you another clue on delivering bad information in a moment. And then make that genuine, honest inquiry that you have about who they are as human beings for the end. The last impression is the lasting impression. That is what they will remember. And that's what they carry forward to the next call. That's a rule that covers all aspects of negotiation. We learn this in different hostage takings and kidnappings because people are so concerned about first impressions, they very rarely focused on last impressions. The last impression is the last impression. Control your last impressions. Find a way to end positively no matter what because that is what lingers in people's minds. You got bad news, call them on the phone and say, I've got bad news. Bang, and then hit them with it. It's kind of... Telling someone that you've got bad news is like brace yourself. They brace themselves and then the punch. The, the kidnapping that I referred to where people died, when I got, I got a call, the negotiator that called me says, I've got bad news. Martin is dead. And he gave me just enough time to brace myself so I wouldn't get caught off guard. And I spent the rest of the day making my phone calls exactly like that. I was so appreciative of being given the bad news that quickly. You're going to want to say, I've got bad news. I don't want you to react negatively. I'm sorry. I don't want you to feel bad. You're going to say a whole bunch of things. Give them a warning. Brace yourself. It's coming. And bang, hit them. And they will appreciate that. Add in, this is how we're going to deal with it. You've got an issue where something has gone wrong with a purchase or sale of a house. I got bad news. This happened. This is how we're going to deal with it. They will love you for that. They know things are going to go wrong. They don't expect perfection. But they want to be able to rely on you. And you begin to put things in context for them. And that's when your expertise as a real estate professional really begins to shine. All the reasons why they hired you in the first place. Because of your knowledge of the market. And demonstrating how you're going to deal with glitches. Because regardless of the market, you guys know their problems. You know, meteors are coming. This is how you handle it in an emotionally intelligent way. So, who's this guy? Is this guy crazy? Is he high? What's this American smoking? What's wrong with yes? That was what they, you know, why is yes wrong? It was the chapter 
that sold my book to my publisher was initially, yes is the last thing you want to hear. And yes has been described as the most beautiful word in the English language. How could it be? How could it be the last thing we want to hear? And the most famous negotiating book in the world is getting to yes, right? And even Dr. Cialdini, who was here yesterday, he's got a book called 50 Scientifically Proven Ways to Get to Yes, which I bought. Because it's like 50 ways to leave your lover, right? It's 50 scientifically proven ways to get to yes. I want those 50 ways. Because we love yes. It's an interesting story. Um, supposedly when John Lennon first began to fall in love with Yoko Ono, he went to this art exhibit that she'd put together. It was like this obstacle course art exhibit where you climbed over stuff and you crawled under stuff. And then you got to this rickety ladder and you climbed the ladder and at the top was a telescope. And you looked through the telescope and far letters on the far, in small letters on a far wall with the words, yes. Let me ask you something. Phone on the other, you pick up the phone, the voice says, have you got a few minutes to talk? What do you initially, what's your initial reaction? Tighten up. A few minutes to talk. Five or few minutes to talk, do I want to talk to you? I have a few minutes to talk and I want to talk to you. Do I want to talk about what you want to talk about? You know, there's not a man on the planet that hasn't got a call from the most important person in the world. He picks up the phone and she says, can we talk? And he thinks, well, hmm. I know I like talking to you, but somehow I don't think I want to talk about what you want to talk about. <laughs> After that, how long is a few minutes? I got, a, I got an attorney colleague. He gets this long agenda. He calls me on the phone and says, have you got a few minutes to talk? It's 45 every time. Right? And finally, how do I get off the phone? Now, what's the problem with that? All these things are going through somebody's mind. If they've said, yeah, yes, okay, go ahead. But all these things are going through their mind. They're not paying attention. That's the first problem. The second problem is nobody ever asks you to say yes to anything unless it's going someplace. Would you like to make more money? Would you like to be more successful? Would you like to have more free time? Buy my book. <laughs> nobody ever asks you yes unless it's going someplace, ever. And experiment with this a little bit because you cannot get a straight, flat yes out of anybody. My son and I were talking about this the other day. We walked up to a guy. Uh, he was a security guard in a building that we were in. He had the name of his guard company on his, on his uniform, Allied Security. So we walk up and we're handing him our identification on the way out. And I look at him and I said, do you work for Allied Security? He goes, well, yeah. Couldn't give me a straight yes. People can't say yes straight out because people are worried about what it's going to let them in for because yes is always leading them into a trap. Always, 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 always. A student of mine at the USC's going on a honeymoon in a resort off-season. 
and they're offering discounts in the regular rooms off-season, but not in the bungalows. He knows the bungalows are empty. He wants to negotiate, but they're not offering discounts. He, he wants a discount on a bungalow. He gets the manager on the phone, and he says, it's the off-season, right? Simply trying to confirm an innocent fact. But his manager knows it's going someplace. Everybody does this. Experiment with it. Stop this weekend or tonight. Next time you're at a shopping mall, go to your favorite store. What's a, what's a, what's a store? I know you guys don't have, do you guys have Nordstrom's? Do you have Nordstrom's here? Go to your favorite store in the mall. Stand outside. I, I, I was a, there was a Woolworths over here in the, in the shopping center. I said, all right, stand outside Woolworths. Stop people just before they're going in. Say, do you like shopping at Woolworths? I bet they don't go in. <laughs> I bet if you do that long enough, they call the police on you. <laughs> so it's a problem. But we'd, we'd love to hear what we're driving for. We don't know how, how nervous we make other people. And the interesting thing was when I was working on my book, one of the writers that I work with said, as a hostage negotiator, Chris, how'd you get... Hostage takers to say yes. The only question he ever asked me to completely stump me. And I just went completely silent. I said, we didn't. It's useless. Not one single hostage negotiation technique designed to get somebody to say yes. Not one. I will tell you as an aside note also, the hostage negotiation teams in Australia, in the United States, and in Hong Kong, and in Cape Town, South Africa, and Tokyo, Japan, and Bogota, Colombia, all use the same skills. The exact same skills. Because they work on human beings. And that's a universal component. Before we were any ethnicity, before we were even gender, we were human beings. And these skills work on human beings. So instead of getting them to say yes, this is what we want to get people to say. That's right. That's right is what you say when you hear something is a complete truth. That's right is when you feel connected to somebody. Now, I will point out that that's, not, that's right is not the same as your right. Your right is a problem. Your right is the biggest fake agreement there is there. Your right is when somebody you're working with is hounding you about something that you don't want to do, and, you, and they won't leave you alone, they won't listen to you, so you look them in the eye and you say, you're right. And they get a big smile, and they walk away, and they leave you alone. And they come back the next day, and they start in on you again, and you go, you're right, and they leave again. So we tell people that we want to maintain a relationship with. We like them, or we have to maintain the relationship. We just want them to shut up and go away. It's code for please shut up. But that's right, on the other hand, is huge. Let me introduce you to a friend of mine. American kidnapped in the Philippines. Another Philippine story. He's got himself in the hands of this guy. Bad to the bone. 
straight out of the movies, sociopathic, rape and murder and head chopping terrorist. This guy was always photographed. If you're a terrorist, you like the media. That's why you're in the terrorism business. You want attention. Couldn't get attention as a kid. This is one way to get attention as an adult. He always had the same outfit on. Sunglasses, black bandana, black t-shirt, camo pants, 45 on the side. Thought it made him look dashing. Big ego guy. He's got our American. I am coaching this guy. As the international, as a lead international kidnapper negotiator for the FBI, what I really was was an international negotiation coach. That's how I didn't need to speak the language. I know negotiations. I know human dynamics. I just need to find somebody that's coachable. This guy's coachable. He was a superstar. He also happened to be the head of their special action force, the SAF, their version of Navy SEALs. Very smart guy, understood how to learn, took the coaching. But make no mistake, my negotiator wanted to kill my killer. And he had a little bit of trouble sort of reconciling him to this nice approach, this tactical empathy approach, so much so that we're working together late one night, and he's kind of getting it, but he's not quite embracing it entirely because he wants to kill our bad guy. And we're sitting there, and I'm coaching him, and I see a snarl come over his face. Our bad guy's name is Sabaya, and my guy is Benji. And I look at Benji, and I say, I realize i got to get a latch right out of Benji. And I say, you hate Sabaya, don't you? He says, I tell you I do. He is murdered and he is raped. He's cut the heads off of innocent people while they couldn't do anything about it. He's come on our radios while we were bombing his position and said, these mortars are music to my ears. And the only way that he can do that is if he's standing over the body of one of my colleagues. I hate him. And with that, I saw Benji center himself and really fall into line. And he was ready to follow the direction that I was giving him. Now, this entire kidnapping, while this is going on, the demand for our American is $10 million. But it's not a ransom demand, because our killer is smarter than that. He wants $10 million in war damages for 500 years of oppression from the Spanish to the Japanese to the Americans to the atrocities committed by the American general Black Jack Pershing to the violation of the fishing rights to the economic harm from over 500 years from three colonial oppressors. You might ask yourself, wow, those things may have happened. What does that have to do with our American? Doesn't matter. Were you ever in an interaction where somebody was throwing tons of reasons for what they wanted at you that made no sense? Kind of the nature of human beings. So we're going back and forth, and we can't get this $10 million reduced off the table, anything. And one day I said, we're going to press the reset button here. You're going to get Sabaya, our killer. You're going to get him to say, that's right. That's your one goal of the next conversation. You're going to summarize all this nonsense, what he said and how he feels about it. That's the hard part for everybody. You want to take the facts and put your spin on them. We're going to go with their spin, what they say about it. You're going to talk about the 500 years of oppression, the injustices, the economic harm. And you're going to keep talking until Sabaya has no choice but to say that's right. 
Two days later, my negotiator gets the killer on the phone and says, you're not after ransom for Jeffrey Schilling. You're after war damages because of the economic harm for 500 years of oppression from the Spanish to the Japanese to the Americans to the atrocities committed by the American imperialist invaders, the injustice of it all, the violation, the economic harm. And he goes on and on and on and on. And then he goes silent. And Sabaya goes silent. And he says, that's right. They sit in silence for a moment. And my guy says, let's talk again in a couple of days. Hang up the phone. We go from $10 million to zero in that conversation. That was the last time they ever mentioned money, the entire duration of the kidnapping. Kidnapping lasts a couple of more months. It has some ups and downs. They try to get some other intermediaries involved. Finally, the American walks away. He walks away on Monday, Thursday, the Thursday before Easter. The, Ameri- the Philippine military finds out that he's out walking around loose in the south of the Philippines. They fly down, they pick him up, they fly him out. The Philippine military claims that they rescued him in a daring rescue operation. Shot all these terrorists, wounded them. They crawled off into the jungle and died. That's why we don't have any bodies to show you. Flew Jeffrey out of there. I'm back in the Philippines about three weeks later on another kidnapping. I catch up with my guy, Benji. He says, you're not going to believe who called me on the phone. I don't know who called you. Sabaya. Sabaya still got my guy's undercover cell phone, knows him by his undercover name. Figures he had to have been either with the police or the military just because he's not stupid. That's the only way somebody would be talking to him, had to be from the government. Sabaya calls Benji on the phone and says, have you been promoted? I have no idea what it was that you said to me on the phone. I was going to kill the American. You kept me from doing it. They should promote you. He hung up. Do you guys ever see that Billy Crystal, Robert De Niro movie, Analyze This? De Niro goes, you, you got a gift, you. You're good, you. That's what Sabaya was saying. The terrorist, the killer, is saying to my negotiator that has beaten him in every single way. This terrorist got nothing. His entire organization ended up in a shambles. He actually ultimately ended up losing his job as a terrorist negotiator. And he still respected him enough. That's the way you want to lead people at all times. That's the key to a business that includes an ongoing and steady stream of referrals. A steady diet of referrals, not always prospecting for new clients. If you leave people saying that's right with you, the connection that they feel with you, if a killer sociopath can feel that connected and that much respect to a government negotiator, imagine how much negativity that kind of connection overcomes in other traumatic instances, such as people buying, you helping them buying and selling their hopes and dreams and their vision for a future. They will not expect everything to go their way, but a solid connection with them on a regular basis makes a big difference. This is some old advice. Carl Rogers was a guy who was just a psychologist in the 70s in the U.S., and he, start, he sort of brought this comp, 
concept of empathy back to us. One of the things that I always kind of loved about using Carl Rogers' empathy in kidnappings was because, you know, I've Googled him a couple of times. I think his middle name was actually Ransom. I just figured, you know, this nice guy, if he knew that I was beating terrorists with what he taught, you know, I don't know if he'd be happy or sad about it. But this is also the Stephen Covey advice. Seek first to understand, then be understood. Covey told us to do this, but we didn't really know exactly how to do it. Most people want to look at somebody and say, I understand. And think that the other person feels understood. When the other person looks at you in the eye and says, that's right. That's when they feel understood. That's when the bond between the two of you have been established. That's when the other person is looking at you and saying, I feel empathy from you. And now, I feel connected to you. I I took this training and uh, I got brought into an oil company. He said, "We uh, we need business negotiation. But I can't pay you for that because we're with security and the other executives in the, con- in the company don't want us being negotiating against them. So give us some kidnap negotiation training that'll work in business interactions. What do you got? I said, I get, that's right. Let me come down and teach it to you. It'll be perfect. I taught it to him in Peru. I'm back in, in Houston. A few months later, one of the guys from the Peru training comes up to me and he says, hey, I've been, I, I couldn't wait to tell you. After the training, I was on the phone with my ex-girlfriend She got a that's right out of me. I was good with it when it happened. I'm still good with it. That's how you want to lead people in your interactions. You want them to feel connected to you. They're not going to expect to get everything, but they are going to expect for you to look out for them and treat them as if you're connected to them. Back up. Work on this. This is going to be a little bit of a difficult habit to break. Getting out of the yes habit, you have a yes addiction. To give you an idea of how tricky it can be to break your yes addiction, because this isn't complicated, make a fist with either hand. Put your right thumb up, put your left forefinger out. Now switch, switch back, switch, speed up, quicker, quicker, quicker. If I'd asked you to do that while you were standing, some of you would almost have fallen over. Was that complicated? Well, it was awkward. Your brain's not used to doing that. Your brain can get used to doing it without, with a little bit of practice, but initially that's the greatest barrier to learning, the initial awkwardness. You're going to feel ridiculously awkward getting away from your yes addiction. You use yes to be respectful, to use yes to be appreciative. You have an, a lot of great reasons for using yes, but unfortunately... So many other people are trapping everyone else with yes that most of humanity is reacting like battered children. You try to hug a battered child, they're still going to duck, even though you meant to hug them. Wasn't your fault. 
but it's still the syndrome that everybody's dealing with. So, if you want to know more, and only if you'd like to know more, I can promise you, if you just move that's right into your interactions and yes out, you're going to make an exponential leap forward. You are going to be delighted at the number of deals that you will make when you are getting ready to give in. That in and of itself sold my entire book. There's more there if you want it, only if you want it. We also have a newsletter that's free. I have an old coll- a colleague of mine used to like to say, if it's free, I'll take three. But I want to help you get better. You can move your businesses forward. Slight two-millimeter changes. All right, now I would ask all of you to stand up, please. Remember I told you before about Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones, the men in black? They actually worked for me. Remember the little red flashy thing? I got them in our cell phones now. Everybody look up here. All right. Stay there. You are now all black swans. You appreciate that you are helping people in some of the most stressful moments of their lives when their hopes and dreams for the future are on the line. You will guide them through that and continue to build your businesses as a trusted advisor. Enjoy the rest of the conference.